Matthew chapter 7 and from verse 1. Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Um, I cycle in London. Uh, I'm not a serious cyclist. I don't wear kind of wear the kit. And I've taken the personal decision that lycra would be a public hazard. But, but when you cycle, you do notice just how judgmental other people are, and you judge them. So the cyclist judges the motorist, and the pedestrian judges the cyclists, and the mo- motorist judges, well, everybody. And I guess all of us judge, and judgmentalism is rife. And we judge one another on all sorts of things, how we educate our children, how our children, how we ourselves were educated, how our children behave, how others' children behave, our carbon footprint, our attitudes to race, our distant ancestors' attitudes to race, our speech, our sexuality, our appearance, our earning power, our position. As the HR department would tell us, unconscious bias is everywhere. But, do you know, when I did my, my unconscious bias training, I couldn't help noticing how judgmental the course instructor was. And I'm afraid I judged them. But it's not so much the unconscious bias as the conscious that we're looking at today. There in verse 1, judge not, that you be not judged. In 2019... Uh, Douglas Murray wrote his book, The Madness of Crowds. There are three major sections, one on sexuality, one on women, one on race. And after each major section comes a short piece reflecting on one or other of the issues raised. Following one main section comes a piece on forgiveness. What, What happens to a culture when we've forgotten how to forgive? Rampant judgmentalism. Cancelling, ghosting, deleting, outright trashing. He says this, We do seem to live in a world where actions can have consequences we could never have imagined, where guilt and shame are more at hand than ever, and we have no means whatsoever of redemption. Offence archaeologists dig for errors everywhere. Then he has this great thing to say, it's... Wholly unsurprising that studies show an increase in anxiety, depression, and mental illness in young people today, rather than being a demonstration of snowflakeism, it's a wholly understandable reaction to a world whose complexities have grown exponentially in their lifetimes. So the issue today is a really hot one, and we can see that it is judging one another. Actually, the word to judge comes five times in that first sentence. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And I want to put a suggestion to you. It may 
contrast absolutely what, with what we think, that following Jesus can bring an end to judgmentalism. Now, of course, Jesus can't mean that you or I are to have no opinions. In just another verse, Jesus refers to some people as pigs and dogs. And just a few sentences later, he tells us to watch out for wolves who come in sheep's clothing. So Jesus is not ruling out discernment. Nor can Jesus be saying that we are never to declare something wrong. Jesus himself says, woe to you. To various groups of people, and he's just reframed God's law and told us what is right and what is wrong. Nor can Jesus mean we are never to reprove or correct one another, because just in the next sentence he talks about taking a speck out of somebody else's eye, and he does expect that to happen. So Christians are not, as one writer to put it, to become amorphous, undiscerning blobs who never under any circumstance whatsoever hold any opinions about right and wrong. Rather, the word to judge can be used in a number of different ways for a final verdict, for the courtroom process, for general assessment. And here, when he says, do not judge, that you be not judged, he's talking about fault-finding, blaming of others, magnifying errors, spotting mistakes, enjoying pointing them out, passing rash and hasty judgment at small offenses of others. And so judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, of course, we hate judgmentalism. I hope you do. I certainly do. And we judge those who are judgmental. And it is so ugly. And I don't know about you, but we find ourselves full of the very conscious and unconscious attitudes that we so detest in others. But because this comes as part of a series of four do-nots that follow the Lord's Prayer... We need to realize that in Jesus' teaching, this is far, far worse than we might have thought. It's not just something that's ugly and unattractive, but it's profoundly damaging. So if you just flip back a page to chapter 6 and verse 19, you see the first of the do nots, do not lay up treasure for yourself. Do you know this storing up of treasure, you know, it'll rot up your relationship with our Father in heaven because your heart will follow your treasure rather than look to the Father. And then in verse 28, do not be anxious. This too will rot up our relationship with our Father. In fact, it shows that we don't really trust our Father if we're caught up in anxiety and worry. But now, in chapter 7, verse 1, don't judge. This too will rot up our relationship. We'll spend all our time looking sideways at others. None of our time looking upwards at the Father in heaven. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus has a cabinet with two medicines with which to counter the disease of judgmentalism. And so I thought about it. You know, here's one for the HR department. Another one for the HR department. Last week we were looking at stress. This week, judgmentalism, bias, unconscious or otherwise... And following Jesus, do you know it would work wonders for the sewer of our judgmental hearts? It really, it really does, if we follow him seriously. Here are the two medicines. First, look up, and secondly, look in. 
Look up. Verse 2. Now, it could be that verse 2 has to do with short-term being judged by others here and now. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So it could be referring to kind of immediate repercussions if you're a very judgmental kind of person. Our judgmentalism will come back to bite us. We're being warned that harsh, condemning attitudes rebound to smack us in the face. For the more judgmental and harsh we've been to others as we dished it out, the more judgmental and harsh they'll be to us. And when you think about it, our judgmentalism, you know, it's usually a mark of our insecurity. We use it as a defense mechanism to feel good about ourselves. But if we kind of erect around ourselves a protective fence of judgmentalism, when our time comes, that fence will come crashing down as enemies pour in to judge us. And I think Jesus, if it just read in the flat what Jesus is saying, look, we don't need to do that. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you have a loving Father in heaven. We don't need to be insecure like that. We are precious to him. So we don't need to puff ourselves up by proving ourselves against the minimalist standard of others. Look to the Father. He loves us. Don't judge. So read in the flat like that, that's sound wisdom. But in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, where the eternal perspective is so much in the frame... I think what Jesus says in verse 2 must refer to future judgment as well. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So you yourself will face judgment. We ourselves will face judgment. There is a God in heaven to whom we must give an account. That is a fundamental fact of life. We will end this life and we will meet our creator. We will be judged by him. And the more we recognize the difference between right and wrong in others as we condemn them, the more we find ourselves open to the accusation that our failure when we stumble is willful, not ignorant. So be jolly careful how you censor others lest you yourself find yourself censored by God on the final day. That raises the stakes. I need to beware of a judgmental attitude, lest I find myself utterly condemned on judgment day before the God who judges. Furthermore, our judgmental attitude suggests that we fail to grasp that we ourselves are guilty of sin, that we ourselves need forgiveness. And if we fail to see our sin and the mercy that has been shown to us, we have to ask whether we have a real relationship with the Father. So if we have a real relationship with the Father, we see his absolute standard as laid out by Jesus in chapter 5, and we suddenly realize we haven't got a leg to stand on. And then we realize the grace and mercy and kindness and love and goodness 
of God who sent his son to die for our sins. And when we realize the grace and goodness and kindness and love and mercy of God who sent his son to die for our sins and we realize that we ourselves are bankrupts, well, won't we then show mercy to others? This ties in absolutely with the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, mourn their sin, for they shall be comforted. Who is it that judges? Who is it that spends their life pointing the finger? Answer the person who has not yet realized that he or she has a vast mountain of contaminated debt piled up in the vault of their own spiritual bank account. It's inconceivable for a person who has had their own mountain of debt cancelled by a loving father in heaven then to point the finger and demand judgment for another. Or it should be inconceivable. So let's plug this back into the last three episodes of the Sermon on the Mount. The first mark of the secularist, chapter 6, verse 19, is that they will store up treasure on earth. They'll be frenetic and frantic about storing up treasure on earth because they don't have a father in heaven who loves them and cares for them. So the atheistic secularist is desperate to store up treasure and store up treasure and store up treasure. And the second mark of the secularist is that they will be utterly stressed, anxious, because they don't realize that they have a father in heaven who loves them. And so you will find in a secularist culture, as in every other atheistic culture, risk aversion, risk avoidance, unentrepreneurial, risk fear, because we're anxious about everything. But the third mark of the secularist culture is that of the harsh and condemnatory spirit. The man or woman who doesn't know that there's a God in, uh, in, uh, uh, it, it, there is a God in heaven who has an absolute standard, that they themselves have failed that absolute standard and are utterly dependent upon the mercy of God. And once you've forgotten that, mercy goes out the window. Raw judgmentalism, critical, harsh attitude, cancelling, deleting, trashing, a rapid readiness to spot the fault of others. And so says the Lord Jesus, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Uh, The Apostle Paul says exactly the same in Romans chapter 14. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, and each will have to give an account of himself to God. By the way, if you are here for the first time this morning, you've never come across the Christian faith in its kind of biblical form before. This is such an important truth. It is actually the most pressing truth to get hold of that you and I will have to give account to God on the day of judgment. The day is approaching. So look up. 
There's a Father in heaven who is merciful and kind and forgiving and grace-filled. Judgment belongs to him and him alone. He has shown us mercy. Leave the judging to him and start being merciful. Now that then ties closely to the second medicine in the cabinet, which is look in, verses 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. Now, the speck here is a tiny, dry stick, a piece of stubble or straw, caught up by the wind at threshing time. It's a fleck of sawdust. So, cycling is part of this talk. When you're cycling home from work through London and you've forgotten your goggles, you know, it's a piece of dust or a leaf on one of those dry days. The log, on the other hand is not simply just a small plank, it's the main beam that holds the building together. I was going to ask you to look up at the ceiling, but I won't in case you get a piece of dust in your eye, which won't be helpful at all. But those big beams up there, that's what he's talking about. It's deliberately comical. Why? Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye or your sister's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's whacking great log in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly. A number of years ago, I got a piece of rusted metal in my eyeball. I didn't notice initially. I think it came. I was cutting through an old beam with a chainsaw. Um, Obviously hadn't done the risk register. Uh, yes, I know, I know. And uh, I didn't notice it. But a few weeks later, you suddenly realize you go to see the eye doctor and the eye doctor tells you, you've got a piece of rusted metal in your eyes. Oh my goodness, I didn't realize that. Uh, and off you go to Moorfields. But there are amazing people up in Moorfields, aren't they? They come right up close. It's quite threatening if you have personal distance issues like I do. But they come right up so close And they shine this bright thing in your eye. But imagine as you're looking back at them, you suddenly realize they had a whacking great log in their eye. Well, it would be absurd. Remember, the point here is not that we should never in any circumstance exercise any of our critical faculties when it comes to the behavior and belief of our brothers and sisters. No. But take a long, hard look at ourselves before we speak against any brother or sister, have we thought long and hard that we ourselves will stand before the judgment seat of God and we may have a whacking great log in our own eye? Have we searched our conscience? Uh, Don Carson, I think, he's uh, just the most outstanding New Testament scholar and a great preacher, and if you haven't got it, this little book of his on the Sermon on the Mount is really is gold dust. I have found some of his comments deeply challenging as I've prepared this week. The harping critical attitude may become so poisonous that people whose spiritual stature, personal integrity, and useful service are vastly superior to our own 
somehow emerge as spiritual pygmies and intellectual paupers by the time we've finished our assessment. Perhaps some small deficiency or inconsistency in their life has, in our view, utterly cancelled their great stature. It's challenging, isn't it? He talks about younger people, you know, quick to form their own views. He's worked a lot with students and, you know, you formed your own view and everybody else who hasn't seen this is, uh, you know, is somehow a nothing. And I have to say, I think about the way I treated my parents when I was a, new, a young Christian. But then he goes on to older people. Older people, fearful of their positions, concerned with their prestige, and often disturbed by what they take to be the lack of productivity in their lives, often become singularly defensive, rigid, judgmental, intolerant, nasty, even, and petty. The more you think about it, the more radical this is. You know, we rail against the colonialism and imperialism of the 19th century. Where do our clothes come from? Have you visited a sweatshop in Bangladesh? Here's a thought. Any culture that rejects Jesus inevitably is going to become more judgmental because harsh harsh condemnation of others begins to grow when we realize, fail to realize that we ourselves have fallen short and depend on mercy. Now the final thing, we just got time for this. Yes, we have just got time for this. The final thing that will rot up our relationship with God is there in verse 6. I was rather hoping we might have run out of time by the time we get to this, because it is one of the most difficult verses in Matthew's Gospel to make sense of. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Well, the dog here is not the cuddly chihuahua from Crufts or the prized preened poodle or the dainty fashion accessory poking its nose out of a celebrity handbag on Curzon Street. It is the vicious, filthy street dog. And the pig here is not Pepper or Percy. It's the swine of the field. Both are unclean, filthy, and ritually impure in the eyes of the kosher Jew. And the pearl is the relationship that we have with the Father. It has to be. He has forgiven us. We have an intimacy with him. He loves us. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So what does this mean? It can't mean don't share the Christian message with those who don't yet follow Jesus. Not least because, you know, over and again in this gospel, Jesus insists that we should follow me and I'll make you a fisher of people. Many will come from east and west. Go and make disciples of all nations. The traditional interpretation has it that we should be discerning when it comes to sharing the gospel. Once someone has rejected the Christian gospel again and again and again and again, there may come a point when it's necessary to shake the dust off one's feet and move on elsewhere. Don't continue to waste your energies on somebody 
when they've demonstrated unequivocally that they're simply not interested. In that case, we're being warned about becoming a bore, if you like, with sharing the Christian message. And I think sometimes, you know, you see that that is necessary. It's terribly painful, isn't it, with a family member or a colleague who you're really fond of. Again and again and again, they've just rejected the Christian message. There comes a point where it just becomes fruitless and a bore. But I wonder if we might develop and broaden the traditional interpretation just a touch. It just happened when I started thinking about this a number of uh, years ago, actually, for the for, for, for second or third time through. I was reading a passage in the Old Testament where the king, Hezekiah, unnerved by the power of one of his neighbors, brought the neighbor in to show off all the treasures of the temple. And his desire was to impress them. Nothing in all his house or his realm did he not show them. All the gold of the temple and all the rest of it. And very shortly after, that neighbor came in, turned over Jerusalem, and stripped the temple bare of all of its gold. I wonder whether we're being warned here against the kind of insecurity that looks to form allegiances with the world, almost as if Christians are showing off to the world to try and court the approval of the world, to impress the world. Don't give to dogs what is sacred. Don't throw, throw your pearls before swine, says Jesus. Don't be so insecure. You've got this glorious relationship with your Father in heaven. You don't have to try and show off. For me, as the rector of a church in the city, with occasional meetings with CEO and big livery companies, which sometimes I get involved in. You, know, you get the, in, the sense that when somebody comes to talk to the rector of St. Helens, they assume basically there are two old goats and possibly the rector on a Zimmer frame or something like that in church. And there's a tremendous temptation to want to cry and show off. Oh no, don't you realize that on Sunday evening the building is absolutely packed with young people and all this sort of stuff. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't need to be insecure like that. You have a relationship with your Father in heaven. He's in charge. Trust him. Well, we must come to an end there for these four key issues, which I think have so much to say to our HR departments, to our colleagues, to our friends. Stress-busting, you want that? Follow Jesus. The end of selfish hoarding, you want that? Follow Jesus. Judgmentalism, you want to cleanse and purge the ugliness, follow Jesus. And ostentatious showing off, follow Jesus. It's a wonderful thing to be Christian. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we acknowledge, as we've heard this, just our own guilt as we look at the bar of your perfection and how ugly and judgmental our own hearts are. And we ask that in your kindness, you will be merciful towards us and create in us pure hearts that are ready to be merciful to others. In Jesus' name, amen.